ourselves to. And so, <clears throat> today I have a couple of purposes. And I hope that I can accomplish them both. The first one, I think I can accomplish relatively easy. And that is to provide an accurate account of the question, what is God like? To provide an accurate rendition of that. And I think it's important because we're going to be reading in Luke chapter 1. So if you're not in Luke chapter 1, you might want to turn there. But I think it's important that we present an accurate view of of God because Luke's gospel, in fact, Luke begins his gospel with the words of, with the statement saying, what I'm trying to do here, he's writing to another person. He's writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And he's saying, this is what I'm trying to do. I have done a lot of research. I've done a lot of investigation about Jesus. And I am writing to you to provide for you an accurate account of everything that he said and did. So it seems only appropriate then that as we continue in the book of Luke that we would attempt to provide an accurate account of of who it is that we gather around and celebrate every Sunday. The next thing I would like to do is not simply provide an accurate account. I have a purpose. I would hope that if we provide an accurate account of who God is that in doing so you and I would... be compelled to treasure Him above all things. We often talk about um, the glory of God, how we want to glorify God in everything we do. And um, I know in my, in my class, my students know that the correct answer is always the, to the glory of God. So if they don't know the answer, they'll say to the glory of God. <laughs> it's always a safe answer. It's the Jesus answer, you know. But I often ask myself, what does it mean to glorify God? When we talk about the glory of God, what are we talking about? If I want to say, I want to glorify God. Well, I think a great definition of what it means to glorify God is to present God as He actually is. That when we see God for who He actually is, God is glorified. I pray that we will present an accurate account of who God is so that we might see Him as He truly is. But it doesn't end there. We would see Him as He truly is so that... He might be our most prized and precious possession. That He would be that pearl of great price by which we would sell everything in order to obtain. He would be the treasure in the field that we would sell everything we have so that we might obtain that one great thing. And so today we want to look at... We want to provide an accurate account of who God is for the purpose that we would be more likely to treasure Him above all things. Now the context of our, of our passage today, just real briefly, is that Mary, who uh, is pregnant, goes to visit um, Elizabeth, and um, Mary and Elizabeth get together, and as soon as they come in contact with, with one another, as soon as they come into um, one another's presence, the children in the womb, respond. Um, In fact, John responds. And Elizabeth knows immediately that Mary is carrying the Savior of the world. And 
She even says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And then in verse 45, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord had spoken to her by the Lord. And so that's our context. And so with that, if you will, would you stand? I'd like to read our passage of text and then pray. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy. And he has spoke to our, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer? We thank you, our Father, that we have the scriptures to search and that in them we have eternal life, for it is they that bear witness about Christ and that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness. We know, Lord, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope, and that we have this sure prophetic word as a lamp shining in a dark place, that the vision has not become to us like the words of a book that is sealed, but we have but that we have heard in our own language the mighty works of God. And we thank you, O Lord, God of heaven, maker of heaven and earth, that the things which you have hidden from the wise and the understanding and which many prophets and kings desired to see but did not are revealed to us, humble children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And this thing we, these things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. It's interesting that at the recognition of Elizabeth, as Elizabeth recognizes that Mary is burying, burying, not burying, burying the uh, the Savior of the world, and says, "How is it that you would come to me?" That immediately Mary's response is one of rejoicing. It is one of giving praise to God. She's responding to the realization that God has done everything that God has said He was going to do. That God has fulfilled His promises. I think that's an appropriate response. That's one of the reasons that and what follows here is a song. It's, it's a song. Mary is, hears of how God has fulfilled His promises and she breaks forth and proceeds in a song. I think that's appropriate. Some people ask, I've had some people say, well, I don't really like to sing. Do you sing at your church? Well, yes, we sing at our church. Because it's an appropriate response to 
all the things that God has done. And we see Mary is rejoicing in the things that God has done and the way she expresses herself as she breaks forth in a song of praise that God has done what God said He would do. Now, before we look in detail at this song, we should note how... we. I'd like to point out Mary's incredible understanding of Scripture and her incredible understanding of God. Mary's song is firmly grounded in Scripture. It is, we, we see allusions and in fact even direct quotes from, play, from, books, from the books of Genesis. We see certainly an allusion to 1 Samuel, Hannah's prayer. We see an allusion and quotes from the book of Job and from the book of Psalms. In other words, Mary had a firm grasp of Scripture. And it's amazing because Mary is... Uh, nobody knows exactly how old she was. Probably very young. Some people have said as young as 13. But probably around 15, 16 years old. And she has this incredible grasp of Scripture. And this is kind of uh, impromptu. I mean... If you were to have to sing a song right now that praised the Lord God, could you, from your memory, make, create a song or a, a poem or words of praise that are so thoroughly influenced by God's Word? And so Mary seems to have God's Word in her heart because at the first opportunity, she's able to sing of the goodness and the mercies of God. And so here's this this girl, 15 years old, certainly no theologian, probably been to synagogue just about every week of her life, probably heard um, the men speaking the word of God, probably heard conversations in her homes, heard the stories of God's promises, now the recipient of all of God's promises, and she speaks forth the beauty of all that has been in her heart. It's interesting to note also that the things that Mary says come straight out of Scripture. In other words, Mary's understanding, and we're, we're going to look, because she has this very detailed and comprehensive understanding of God. And we should note that Mary's understanding of God comes from God. comes from Scripture. In other words, Mary's understanding of God does not come from popular culture. It does not come from superstition. It does not come from her own personal opinion. She didn't say, well, I sat in my room one day and I kind of reasoned through these things and I came up with this understanding about who God is. Again, it doesn't come from popular opinion. She didn't get on social media and find out who's saying what and kind of form her own view about who and what God is and what God does. She didn't get it from biographies. By the way, biographies are fine. But she just, she understands who God is. Her understanding of God comes from God. I I guess I should ask ourselves this question. Where does your understanding of God come from? Because as I stated, we're all theologians. Everybody in here is a theologian to some degree or another. You all have an opinion about who God is. You may completely disagree with what I'm about to say. I just simply ask, where does that viewpoint come from? That's all. Does it come from your own opinion? Did you make it up yourself? If so, fine. Why does that have authority? Did it come from something you read? The 
When all else fails, go back to square one. And so our question then is, where does your understanding of God come from? Mary's understanding of God comes straight from God. I think that's a good place to start. So let's look at what Mary, how Mary understands the person of God. And she describes him in many different ways. She, she, she describes his attributes. And the first thing she says, she says, my soul exalts in the Lord. The first thing she understands about God is that he is Lord. And that's kind of a foreign term to us because we don't live in a day and age with lords. <coughs> we had a, an old deacon here years and years ago. And he would always, he would substitute the word Lord and say, use the word boss. And he thought that was a little bit more contemporary. People understand boss. She understands that God is the boss. And I know we don't like, sometimes don't like the idea that God is boss because who are you to be boss of me? Well, I'm God. That's who I am. So... <laughs> But to be the Lord means to be the owner of all things. It is to be the one with absolute authority. And for many people, such an authority is a stumbling block. But God is Lord of all things. He is sovereign over all things. What God says happens. God speaks and it comes into existence. There are many people who have struggled with the idea of God being the sovereign Lord. Way back in the book of Daniel, which, by the way, we'll be studying next, um, we'll be introduced to a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is the sovereign Lord over all things. Until God shuts him down. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is shut down. Basically, he goes nuts. And then at the end of seven years, God restores his sanity to him, and he goes, ah... Yeah, now I get it. Yeah. God is God over all things. He is the Lord over all. And again, uh, kind of on the heels of Daniel, there was a king uh, by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus wasn't a godly king. He didn't worship God. And the scriptures that talk about how God uses Cyrus to bring about all of his purposes and to bring about all of his plans. And he says, Cyrus is my guy. And through Cyrus, I'm going to return my people to their homeland. And through Cyrus, I'm going to... A pagan king! It's because of Cyrus that my people are going to rebuild a temple and rebuild Jerusalem. Oh, and I'm going to have Cyrus pay for everything too. How's that? Cyrus thinks he's the boss. Cyrus thinks he's letting his people go. These people go. He thinks he's doing something that is politically expedient. And God said, hundreds of years prior, I'm going to raise up a guy by the name of Cyrus. And he's going to do all of this stuff. And, he's going to, and I'm going to let him rebuild my, my, my city and rebuild my temple. And he's going to pay for the whole thing. That's what I'm going to do. See, God is Lord. He's the boss. He is in charge of all things. There is nothing that is outside of his hand. There is nothing that he does not control. Now, you don't have to believe that. But it doesn't negate his control. You can say, I don't believe that for one minute. You will not believe that for one minute or two minutes or for the rest of your life. And yet it doesn't negate the fact that God is still in control. Your disbelief does not affect God. So Mary understands. 
that God is Lord. And I think there's a stumbling block for people. I might even put forth that this may be one of the main reasons people don't like the idea of Christianity because it demands that, we'll say in just a minute, but let me just go here, that God is Lord, that there is a boss, there is somebody whom you are accountable to, that you must submit to. Well, the next thing we understand, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She understands that God is not only in control of all things, but God is one who saves. That is a deliverer or one who rescues. Now, we, we tend to like this idea of a Savior, but let me... Un- reveal perhaps the reality of this term Savior. See, if God is a Savior, that presumes that you're in need of saving. We don't really like that idea. It's like, I like the concept of a Savior, but then you have to admit, well, then I'm in need. I, I need to be saved. And who? you don't need to save me. I've, I'm, I've got it, man. I'm, I'm my own person, and I can, I can make things myself. I can do things myself. I don't need anybody to save me. And so when we talk about God being a Savior, we are presuming that there is a need to be saved. And I believe that this is also a hindrance to salvation because we do not like to recognize that we have a need. One of the classic examples is in John 8.33. This one just cracks me up. Well, it cracks me up, but it also saddens me because it shows us the, the, depth, of, of, and the depth of the effects of sin. But in, in uh, John 8.33... Um, Jesus says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And the, the Jews answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? That's an amazing thing. We've never been enslaved to anybody. Meanwhile, there's a Roman guard sitting right over there with a sword. Ready to, it's like they're under Roman rule. How can you say that we'll be free? We've never been enslaved to anybody. Wait a second. You're enslaved to Rome right now. cracks me up, but it also saddens me because this is one of the effects of sin is that we are become so blind that we don't even see the Roman guard sitting over there who's the boss of us. And so he is the Savior. And it means then that we have to recognize that we have a need. But here's the good news. Jesus came to save sinners. I think we've got some passages of Scripture that I'd like to put up there. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And as our kids were up here, one of the scriptures that they read and that you will call him Jesus for he will save his people. Mary understands that. She also calls him a mighty God, calls him the mighty God. Well, this is really interesting because if God is the boss and that he is a savior, does he have the strength to save a guy like me? Is he powerful enough to save me? It's great to be called a savior, but can you do what you say you're going to do? Can you actually affect salvation? Is he strong enough to save This reminds us then of a passage in, in Matthew where the disciples 
Jesus famously says, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I think we spoke about this last week or a couple weeks ago. And, and I've mentioned to you, please do not rip that out of its context. All right? Where it says that nothing is impossible with God, at least in that particular context, it is talking about salvation. All right? The disciples asked, because there was a rich man, who went away and basically rejected Christ. And Jesus said that famous phrase that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And the disciples asked the question, who then can be saved? Because see, if a rich guy, who in their understanding of things, if you're rich, you'd be blessed by God. And he was um, a nobleman of high esteem. Certainly, if anybody is loved by God, it would be this person. And if this person, who's obviously loved by God because of his social and economic status, if he can't be saved, the, the very natural question the disciples would ask is, well, the, if he can't, who can? To which Jesus replies, well, you see, with man it's impossible, but with God, nothing's impossible. Yes, God can save one like you. He can save a wretch like me. He is the boss. And he is a savior. And yes, he is mighty to do exactly what he said he can do. And Jesus came to save sinners. I think it's a sad day because we've reduced Jesus and we've reduced God down to our therapist. He did not come to be your therapist. He came to save you from your sins. Mary also talks about how his name is holy. And generally when we talk about holy, we, we you oftentimes think of a, a moral quality, that holiness has to do with a, a moral quality, purity. And, and certainly it, it carries that idea, the idea of being pure and uh, undefiled and unstained. And certainly holy has that understanding. But, but holy also, and probably more likely, at least in the scripture, has the idea of being distinct or just set apart. When we talk about God being holy, we are talking about God being distinct. That is, he's not like you, and he's not like me. He is, I like this term, other. And it's a sad day when we have created God in our own image. Because, see, when we create God in our own image, we have made him entirely too small. God is other. He's holy. He creates us in His image. And He calls us to be holy. That is, He is to be held in high esteem. In fact, you'll remember when Jesus taught His disciples to pray. Notice the prayer. Our Father, the one in heaven, hallowed or holy be Your name. This is a really interesting phrase. Because it's not, a, it's not an indicative statement. It's not, it's, he's not saying, Your name is holy. Or let Your name... He's not saying that. It's a prayer, and it's a, there's a passive in there, and what that means is, let your name be holy in me. And I think that that Lord's Prayer then, everything that comes after that, revolves around God's name being hallowed, or holy, or distinct, or set apart in us. So when we are hungry and we're asking for food, we're saying, your name is holy. When you give me food, you are holy. When you are... Delivering me from the tempter. Deliver us not into temptation. Or deliver us from the evil one. We are seeing the holiness of God. 
demonstrating itself and delivering us from those things. God is holy and he is entirely other than you and me. He is to be held in the highest esteem. The next thing we see is that he is merciful and oftentimes we we should probably describe mercy as not getting what we deserve. It is to show kindness to somebody in need. I think mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. So if mercy is not getting what we deserve, what I deserve is whatever, something horrible. Mercy is not giving me what I deserve. And grace would be the other side of the coin. And that is um, getting something that is undeserved. So mercy is not getting what is deserved and grace is getting what is undeserved. Does that make sense? And so grace is, here, let me give you a gift. Wait, I didn't do anything for this. That's grace. Mercy is, I should give you a ticket because you were driving like a nut job. You deserve a ticket and a fine, but I'm not going to do that. That's mercy. God is merciful. He does not give us what we deserve. We also see then that God is generous. This reminds me in, in Matthew seven eleven. Jesus says, What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf of bread? Will he give him a stone? And if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father? In Psalm 145, verse 16, one of my favorite psalms, verse 16, the psalmist writes, You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is generous. We see that God is faithful. And this is more than loyal. This is covenant faithfulness. That is, that when God makes a promise, He does not forget His promises. And the promises that Mary is recalling here are the promises made way back to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Thousands of years earlier. Thousands of years. And you and I tend to think that as time goes on, maybe the promises get weaker or we forget about our promises. Or maybe I promised something a long, long time ago, but now it's not so important. See, God, when he makes a promise, it doesn't wane. Even with the passage of time, it doesn't diminish. It doesn't get weaker. It's still good. And so the promises that God made to Abraham, the promise that God made way back in Genesis 3.15, the promises that God made to Moses, even through the passage of time, never waned. They never got weaker. They never diminished. They never, you know, you didn't forget about them. You said, well, it's not that important. Times have changed. I don't really need to keep my promise anymore. No, I said this. Yes, I may have said it thousands of years ago. And it's still good because I cannot lie. Mary understands this. So God is faithful. This isn't just loyal. This is covenant faithfulness. His promises are not forgotten. So as we look at some of these, these attributes of God, um, Mary understands who God is. And because of all of these things, Mary rejoices in song. 
Now, here's the danger about preaching or teaching about the about a list like this. It's easy to make a list like this and say, there, there it is, there's God. And there seems to be something, I don't know, lacking from that. My, my, my purpose today is not just to present a list of seven particular things about God. But I do want to present these things and submit these to you. Does this match your view of God? Because this is Mary's, as we've established, Mary's understanding of God is based on God. This is what God has revealed about himself. This is what Mary has understood. Her understanding of God is thoroughly founded in Scripture. And so the list here is not just so that you can check them off and say, well, I got this one, got that one. I struggled a little with that one. It is one to counter wrong ideas. But it's also so that you and I would purposely... um, view God accurately. If we're going to have a right view of God, it begins with a firm and solid grasp of Scripture, which Mary has. See, Mary's not a theologian. She's not an academic in that sense. She's, it's not like she went to school and learned a bunch of fancy terms and big words and you know complex theories. Mary's a poor girl from backwoods part of the nation. But she has a solid grasp of what God says about God. You don't need to be an academic. You don't need to be some scholar. You don't have to have a high IQ. If you got one, great. And if you don't, it doesn't matter. God's word is available to us. Peter tells us to long for the pure milk of the word. Do you long for the... Mary seemed to long for the the pure milk of the word. I think when we do these things, we end up with a large view of God. And and here's my warning. It preaches good to say, I want to present a large view of God. Let me warn you. When God gets large, you and I get small. Many times we struggle because we like to be large. Or we like God to be kind of equal, maybe just a little bit bigger than us, but not much. (laughs) Superman, maybe. A little bit stronger, a little bit better, a little bit more moral, um, a little bit more persevering, a little bit more faithful. God is Lord over all things. There is nothing outside of His hand. He is the mighty God who is able to save and He is completely other than you and He will fulfill His promises that He made. He will not forget them regardless of how much time goes by. When God is large and you and I get small, then we begin to have an accurate view of God. And that's the God of the universe. Amen. And with that, then, is that we can be confident and satisfied in the God who has made us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I want you to look at that list and and consider that list, not so that you can check them off and say, I got this, I got this, I'm, I'm orthodox in all of my understanding because I can check all of the boxes. I want you to understand these things so that you can completely rest and be satisfied in the God who made you. 
And so, when the trials are coming, and you're not certain about your kids, or you're wondering about your job, or you're wondering about the the medical report that's coming your way, or you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, and you're concerned about the political situations in, in our nation, and you're concerned about the economic situation, you can say, my God is way bigger than all of these things, and He is big, He is in charge, and He is sovereign, and I, and I am placed firmly in the palm of His nail-scarred hands. I'm in good shape. Not because I checked the boxes. Well, that's the good side of God. But there's another side that Mary talks about here, and that is that God's glory is found in judgment. And we don't like to talk about judgment, but we do here because it's part of the Bible. And in fact, you know, we know that the most famous verse in the Bible amongst, like I said, everybody's a theologian and most theologians, they all know, you know, Matthew 7, 1a. Do not judge, right? That They don't know 7b, the second half of that verse, or the rest of that chapter. You should read the rest of that chapter. God judges. And I will say this, that God's glory is found in God's judgment. That is, God is seen accurately. How would we define glory? To view God rightly, to view God accurately. And God's glory is seen in His judgment. And here we see Mary understands this perfectly. Because God exalts the humble and He casts down the proud. The birth of this child that Mary is going to um, bring forth into the world is evidence of God's justice. Because God came, Jesus is going to come to save sinners and to restore his righteous kingdom. He's going to judge sin. And he's going to judge those. He judged the rulers of his day. You'll recall they said at, at his trial, they said, are you the Christ? And what did he say? You'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. You know what he was saying there. Because the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory was the ancient, the one who is revealed in Daniel as the one who comes and judges the nations. Here's what he's saying. Are you the Christ? Yeah, I'm the one who will come and I'm going to judge you for crucifying me. That's who I am. Bad day for those folks. Bad day. It says that God opposes the oppressors. That is the rich who cheat and withhold from people. That is God judges that. The time in which Jesus lived was was filled with people who were, um, I guess, spiritually rich. They were people who trusted in their own righteousness. And God judges. Here's one of the things. The the Sermon on the Mount begins really not in chapter 5, but back in chapter 4. And it talks about, in chapter 4, that Jesus is on this mountain and He's talking, and people from all around the area come and listen to Him. And there are Syrians and all sorts of Gentiles, sinners. People who are uncouth, don't touch them, don't look at them, don't have anything to do with them. And there were people there who were not the religiously elite. They may have been Jews, but they were kind of the downtrodden. That's his audience. And you know every good sermon along with every good song should open with a hook, right? To get your attention. I kind of talked about food because food gets your attention. Gets my attention anyways. (laughs) Jesus had a different hook for his sermon. Here was his hook. 
Blessed are all the spiritual zeros, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking to a bunch of spiritual nothings who got no claim on God, who've been told all their lives, you got nothing. If God would have anything to do with you, that would be an outright miracle. And Jesus steps into this mess, this melting pot of humanity, and says, all of you, you spiritual nothings, you are blessed. God's kingdom is open. Do you think jaws hit the ground? Do you think people who have been told all their lives they are nothing in the eyes of God, and now for this God who raises the dead to come along and say, oh no, that's not it. God's kingdom is open for you. And what do you think about the spiritual elite, the, 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 the religious leaders of the day who've been teaching that they have some extraordinary claim on God and all of this massive nothingness has nothing to do with God. And here comes Jesus who raises the dead, who calms the storms, saying, blessed are these guys. God's kingdom is open for them. Boy, you talk about a hook. I'm certain everybody stood up and paid attention to everything else he had to say. See, he judges the oppressors. He judges the powerful, those unfaithful rulers. See, governing authorities have certain rights, but all those governing authorities will be held accountable to God. The rulers of North Korea, they do not follow God, they do not love God, they do not cling to God, they do not love God, to my knowledge. And they rule in an oppressive, murderous way. And yet, they are accountable to the Holy God for the way they run their country. Our politicians, like them or not, are going to be held accountable for the way they run what they have been given charge over. When they wield power for their own advancement, Mary says, God judges that. This is why we pray for our rulers. So that God would have mercy. And that they would do the right thing. So judgment is actually a part of the Christmas story because God is glorified in judgment because He, he puts down the proud and the spiritually elite and, the, and those who would seek to keep people from entering into God's kingdom. Mary glorifies God for saving those who would humbly receive Him. Mary glorifies God for judging the arrogant who reject God. And it is in judging sin in Christ that you and I have salvation. So... I'll conclude with this. My goal was to glorify God. That is to present Him as He truly is. I've attempted to do that. So then you might ask, well, I thought this season is about Jesus. What does this passage have to do with Jesus? Well, because the Bible tells us that Jesus has come to reveal the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said that, um, in fact, Hebrews chapter 1, and we're studying in Hebrews on, on Wednesday night, says that God in the past days has spoken in a lot of different ways and through many different sources, but in these last days, how has God spoken? In His Son. The Word of God, Jesus, is the Word of God. He is the very presence of God. He is the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten Father. And He is filled with grace and truth. 
This is Jesus. You see, Christianity is a revealed faith. I say this a lot, but I need to get this point across. Christianity is not a discovered faith. Nobody sat around and said, oh, well, you know what, maybe if I enter into heaven somehow that I can discover what God is like. The Bible says that's impossible. It is a revealed faith. That is, we do not ascend into heaven to discover it, but rather heaven descends to us and reveals it. And how and who is the greatest and what is the greatest revelation of God? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born to Mary at the Incarnation. That's why we celebrate this season. See, the truth about God is not achieved by selecting attributes that you and I feel personally satisfying. (coughs) The truth about God is discovered when we consider what has He revealed about us and then believe it. What has He revealed about Himself and then believe it. And so in Advent, Jesus reveals the Father. And so with that, what we are doing is we are using a little Advent candles here. And Beth, if you want to come on up and light our four red candles, you'll recall that the first candle that we had was speaking about Jesus who rescues us from this present evil age. That is, he is the rescuer. Our second candle that we saw Jesus as the coming king. Our third candle, we saw God, that Jesus is God with us. And now the fourth candle, we see that Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. And his revelation is utterly clear. It is completely unmistakable. And it holds every single one of us accountable to that revelation. God is big. And he is in charge. And he is Lord of everything. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place that we might be forgiven of our sins. And so, with that, um, I'm going to ask that we stand as we close in prayer. I know that I'd just like to say also then that if you'd like to talk about who Christ is a little bit,